It is a great joy to be back with you this morning as we uh, dive back into Joshua. And so today we're going to reach Joshua chapter 8. Uh, and for those who were here last week, you may recall the, the relatively challenging message we heard uh, that when, when we saw Achan, this man who had sinned, and his sin had had a communal effect on the people of Israel. Uh, and this was a community, the community of Israel, who were on their way through the promised land that God had give, promised to their ancestors generations ago. In chapter 6, we see the defeat of Jericho, and then things seem to go horribly wrong at the start of chapter 7. And there's, there's this attempted capture of a town called Ai, but it goes horribly wrong. And God shows the people that the reason for that problem and the, the, the defeat at Ai was Achan's sin. And so that sin had to be rooted out uh, so that God could continue to move in and through his people. And that all happened to, to devastating effect for Achan, Achan and his family. But as we noticed last week, the chapter ends with hope. And the chapter finishes with hope because even though we see in verse 1 of chapter 7, we see the very last phrase of that verse, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And that was as a result of Achan's sin. Yet the chapter ends with the very opposite thing. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And so anger is no longer being directed towards the people because the sin had been dealt with. And for us last week, it raised our awareness, I think, of the seriousness of sin, uh, the seriousness of our need to bring our sin to God in confession. And the reason we can bring that sin before God is because he has made a way. He has made a way for, for sin to be fully and finally paid for in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the message of the gospel. It is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so because that's us, we can't get rid of that sin ourselves. No, we need the help of someone greater, of someone holy. And therefore God comes. Sin must be judged, yes, but as we know from Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, these wonderful verses, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God has made a way for salvation to be known because he at one and the same time made a way for his wrath against sin to be satisfied. And we see all of that in the person of Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice on the cross and his victory over sin and death through the resurrection. And so God sent Jesus to take the penalty of sin in our place. That's why we can read chapter 7 and see it finishing with hope because it points us forward to the cross of Christ. It helps us to see God's just and holy wrath against sin has been fully satisfied for all who trust in Jesus. And so that's the gospel. That's good news. That's hope. And that's how we left chapter 7. But, but I wonder how the people here, as this was unfolding for them, I wonder how they walked back to camp from the Valley of Trouble. That's what the Valley of Acor stands for, or means, the Valley of Trouble. I wonder what emotions they were feeling. Maybe they did feel hope, because they knew in the promise of verse 12 of chapter 7 was that God would be with them now that they had removed the sin and everything that was destined for destruction. And so maybe there was hope. Maybe there was a fresh appreciation of the holiness of God, which evoked this reverent fear, an appropriate reverent fear. Well, we might not know exactly how they're feeling. We're not told explicitly what emotions they went through. But as we begin chapter 8, it's clear that God has words to lift their eyes. He has words to lift them and to fire them on. 
It's clear that God wants to speak powerfully to his people and work, continue to work through his people. And so right from verse 1 of chapter 8, if you have your Bibles open, please do follow along. We're going to read the whole chapter in a few minutes, but let me just explain how we start. Given where we ended, look at how we start. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Eight words that must have completely transformed Joshua's mindset at that moment. And of course, these aren't new words for Joshua. He's heard them. These words would have rung loud in his ears as he remembered the call of God back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 9, God says to him, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And as we looked at when we started this series by looking at chapter 1, the reason Joshua doesn't need to have fear and can be encouraged is because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so this set the, set the tone for the whole book, and indeed it has set the tone for our whole series, that because of God's promises that he would be with Joshua, Joshua could then act in obedience as a result of that. He didn't have to be afraid. He didn't have to be discouraged. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so we have seen each week that we've journeyed through these seven chapters up to this point, because of what God has said, the people can act. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the reality is God's promise is unbreakable. It is unfailing. And therefore, the people are able to act if they, want, if they will in complete obedience, trusting in his unchangeable, unbreakable word. And so it seems at the start of chapter 8, these same principles are going to be at play. And, I, and in some ways, I make no apologies for this sounding familiar to, to many of us if we've gone through all seven chapters so far. Because it feels as if the text, it feels as if God is reminding his people here. And therefore, us as we read it again, that he is still at work. He is still in control. He is still sovereign. His promises are still true. And he still calls his people to faithfulness. Even when or if. Of course, it's when. They don't always do so. And so chapter 8 might feel like some kind of a, a reset, and maybe it's even another reset, if we think chapter 5 was like that. And so we're going to see and hear themes that remind us of pre previous chapters, but like I said, that is not empty repetition. As we read chapter 8, it seems that God is graciously reminding his people of who he is, of what he has promised, so that they can then act in obedience to him. And so we're going to read through the whole chapter. Um, and what I hope that we will see as we work our way through is that we will notice God's unbreakable promises, which enable his people's unwavering obedience. God's unbreakable promises, which enable his people's unwavering obedience. And so we'll pick that up as we work our way through chapter 8 of, of God's word. So please do, if you have your Bible, I realize the chapter is lengthy, but it is good for us to read all of God's word this morning. So let's read chapter 8 of Joshua. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king what you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Isn't that a devastating line? Considering Achan, who when they were destroying Jericho, he saw the plunder. He coveted the plunder. He took 
and he hid it, even though God had said not to. Oh, if only he had waited for God's timing. He could have had all the plunder he wanted. Except that you may carry off their plunder, their livestock for yourself. Set an ambush behind the city. Verse 3. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out to attack, uh, come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say, they're running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off, and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army, and he and the leaders of Israel marched marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about five, had taken 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled towards the wilderness. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man, but not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out towards the city the javelin that was in his hand, As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising up to the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites who had been fleeing towards the wilderness had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city and the smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Those in ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivor nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. Then Joshua built built on Mount Ebal, 
an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stone on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as, Mount, as Moses, had, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children, the foreigners, and the foreigners who lived among them. Let's pray as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, that you continue to speak to us through your word, that this is your word to us. And so I pray that you would speak loudly, that we would hear and we would do what you ask of us. It is in your wonderful name and for your unending glory we pray. Amen. Amen. There are many things going on in this passage, and, and so there's only a certain amount that we'll, we'll be able to look at this morning. I'd encourage you to come back this evening for life groups. We're going to look at chapter 7 and 8. Uh, if you want to, the questions are sitting on the tables outside. Take them as you go. Have a glance over those chapters before you come back. Or if you're not able to be here tonight, at least use those questions for your own study. But for the rest of this morning, it would, I think it would be helpful for us to consider all that we've read in light of what I think is one of the overarching themes of this whole chapter. And that is what's on screen, that God's unbreakable promises enable his people's unwavering obedience. And that might sound like chapter one. If you remember then, I'll, I'll, I'll not for my own sake ask for, um, if anyone can remember our title from verse one, but it was that, that the certainty of God's promises brings obedience, brings courageous obedience to his people. And, and so this idea doesn't feel like a new concept as we look at it now in chapter eight. But how important it would have been for the people of this time to hear and to remember. Hang on, God's promises are unbreakable. His promises are unbreakable. Therefore, we can act in light of his strength, of his consistency, of his faithfulness, given the fact that they have just come out of a chapter where one of their people was unfaithful. And so this was good for them, and it is good for us to remember and be reminded of centuries later. They were God's people, and therefore they should live as such. They should know what he has said and live in the light of it. Um, but, but how do we see this theme play out through chapter 8? Well, perhaps as you read over there, you hear the, the battle plans that take place for AI. You hear the complete destruction of that place and everything in it, everyone in it, certainly. And then we see at the end of the chapter, Joshua and the people offering sacrifices to the Lord. Isn't, isn't this all just history? Isn't this all just narrative? It's why I like reading the whole chapter because, yes, it is written as narrative. It is good for us to see what God has been doing. But as we've noticed time and time again throughout the seven chapters previously, yes, this is narrative, but this is purposeful narrative. This is purposeful history because this is the history of God's activity among his people. And so it's an account of God working. It's an account of, 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 uh, so that we can see God at work in and, and among his people, how God orchestrated all of these events for his people to know him 
and see him more clearly. And so what we see of him in these verses, these are truths that continue for us as his people today. And one of the things we see here is that his promises are unbreakable. And because his promises are unbreakable, that enables our unwavering obedience. Because he is so solid, we should look at him and say, yes, I'll follow. And so how do we see this at play? Well, first of all, Joshua hears from God that he doesn't need to be afraid or discouraged Because as God says to him, back in verse 1 we read, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. And why can Joshua do this? Why does he not need to be afraid? Why can he go and attack? For, God said, I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, and his city. God has delivered it. God has made this promise that Joshua then reiterates to the army down in verse 7. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. Even as the battle is going on, God speaks again to Joshua, telling him to raise the javelin. And in verse 18, he is able to do so um, into your hand. For into your hand, I will deliver the city. We've seen this language before, haven't we? God's promises are so secure that they're spoken of in the past tense. I have delivered. Joshua, go and take. I have delivered. Joshua tells the people, the Lord your God will give it into your hand. He has said so. It will happen. And God again says to Joshua, I will deliver the city. You can bank on this, so follow me. And so God will follow through on everything he promises. And therefore, the people can act in light of that, with the assurance of that. And so God has promised that he will give them the city. That's why Joshua can can hear God say to him, take the whole army with you, go up and attack Ai. You can do so, Joshua, because God has promised. You can act accordingly. And Joshua's response is striking, simple but striking. God promises in verse 1. God promises in verse 2. Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Take it and go, for I have delivered it into your hands. And then in verse 3, Joshua's response, So, Joshua and the army go. So. Two little words, I think, carry great weight. Joshua has heard the promise of God, so he goes and does it. We've seen the pattern before, and here we have it once again. It's simple yet profound. Joshua's actions were solely based on the reality of God's words and Joshua's assurance of the truth of them. God has said, so we go. We see it again in verse 18 when, when God has said that I will give you and I will ha- into your hand I will deliver the city. And verse 18 continues. So Joshua held out the javelin. It's so simple, isn't it? it? Sounds so simple when we read it as words on a page. But these are, are, are little details in the text that we might naturally skip over. But the link between what God says and how the people act is undeniable, isn't it? God has said that this has happened, so the people do. The people aren't acting here on their own good sense. This wasn't Joshua's inventive skill. It wasn't Joshua's military strategy that was going to bring the victory. This was God leading his people. And they respond in earnest. It's God's unbreakable promises that enable their unwavering obedience. God has said the people did. It's as if there's a straight line between God has said the people hear, the people do. It's just a, it's a solid straight line. There is no deviation from it in this case. 
And that's why this little word, so, is simple. It shows us the straight line, but it's profound because it challenges us about the state of my life. Uh, as an example to be followed, if someone could watch my life, would they see a straight line between what God has said, what I hear, and what I do? Does the certainty of God's words and my assurance of the truth of them lead to my life being one of unwavering obedience? And so this example is set for us right from the start. It's God's promises that lead to and enable the people's obedience. And then as we move through the text, clearly we see that that this judgment that is being played out against AI is God's judgment. This is all God's activity, God's moving, God's leading, God's directing. And we'll not unpack it again here, but if, you, if, if some of us struggle with some of this idea of these things being devoted to destruction, if you listen back to when we dealt with this in chapter 6, when we see God's holiness and his righteous judgment of sin, then that's what the people are enacting here. But God has said it, the people do it, and, and it's, it comes into, into stark consequence for the people of ai but throughout that as we read of the battle taking place clearly the the main event is the victory that god wins for his people but even in the midst of that victory the celebration is one of god this is not a celebration of the israelite army it's not a celebration of joshua's wonderful military strategy it is a celebration of god it's god who tells joshua set an ambush Joshua then tells the people, go and set an ambush. It's the ambush and the the military strategy that wins, but it's God's. And it all comes back to the Lord being the architect of all of this. It is his voice that the people listen to. It is his promises that stand firm. And when the people obey them, his will is done. You see, it's the words of the Lord that directly enable the people's actions. And that strategy, as we've said, it's devastatingly effective, isn't it? It is a brilliant military strategy. Joshua splits some of the army, and some are sent to um, to sit in ambush to the west of the city, as he and the majority of the army come from the north. And because of chapter 7 and the failure that the army had had, it's as if the Israelite army are banking on, and, and rightly so, uh, their, their understanding that the people of Ai will chase them again. Here come the Israelites, and they will flee from us once more. And so they do that. Joshua leads his army away from the AI. The people, the army of AI follow out. And as they follow out, AI is emptied of all its fighting men. And the ambush rises and takes the city. Smoke rises from the city. The people of AI see that. They turn. They can't go and help because the army that was in part of the ambush then comes out to attack them from one side. The army that was fleeing turns and attacks from the other. And as we read, the people are cut down. And so this is devastating consequence for AI. But the point of it all, I think, is not just the holy, righteous judgment of God. It is the fact that the Israelite army here is acting in obedience to God's word. He had given the plan. They are enacting it. And that is a good model for us. What do we hear of God's word? And how straight is the line between what he has said and our actions? So the majority of the chapter is taken up with the military conquest over AI. And then in verse 30, there's a change, a change in scene. Uh, From the intense battle and the victory scene, we're taken then to a place of worship. And in general terms, we read some of these details, and it seems like standard, a standard behavior of God's people. Joshua builds an altar, 
And the people offer sacrifices. Joshua writes out the law and reads that to all the people. Uh, and of course, these are highly significant things, again, when we consider the point of history that we're standing in. But, but I wonder, did you notice as we read through, there's a lot of detail given here as to how the people worshipped, where they worshipped. And whenever we recognize this overarching theme of this chapter, that it's about God's unbreakable promises that enable his people's unwavering obedience, then we reread these details from verse 30 to the end of the chapter. We start to see that these are not incidental details. These are actually all a response to what God has said previously and the people now obeying fully. See, all of this extra detail helps us to see, as readers, we see the unity of God's word. As we'll see in a minute, all of what is detailed here has been spoken of God before. And so it helps us to see how God's story is consistent. But it also is a, is a good reason to have, if you're able to, um, and if you don't have one, please speak to me and, and we'll get one, uh, a really good study Bible. Because as we are reading through some of these, some of these passages, we might not understand at first grasp the details that are being mentioned here. But if you've got a study Bible with cross-references that will take you back to show how what's happening here is a fulfillment of what was promised before, that builds our faith. It builds our understanding of God's one story of his word, but it also helps to build our understanding of the unbreakable nature of God's promises. He has said, so the people must do, and when they do, he blesses. And so there, there's plenty of hints here that help us see that all of the details in these verses are pointing back. So right from verse 31 well, from verse 30, then Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal and the, an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses. So clearly what, Mo, what Joshua does now with and for the people on in this setting is based on what they were told previously. And we might not be able to go into all of the detail here, but it is important that we see that where this is happening, what is happening, and how it all takes place has been spoken of before. And the fact that the people are doing it now is a sign of their obedience. And so back in Deuteronomy, we see it in, verses, in chapters 11 and again in verse 27. This whole scene was planned out. For example, when we think of the place that this is happening... This has been spoken of before. Moses, when he was speaking to the people back in Deuteronomy 11, verse 29, he says, When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. So these two mountains are mentioned here. We see them both talked about in verse 33. And exactly what is happening in verse 33 is what Moses had said, this is what you must do. And the people now are doing them in this special place. We see that half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim in verse 33, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded. Blessings and curses are read. We see that in verse 34. So Joshua, as he's leading the people here, he's clearly aware of all of this. He's aware that this has all happened through Moses, but this is not just another celebration of Joshua being a stand-up guy. This is not just a celebration of, look, Joshua, you are a wonderful fella. Moses obviously has trained you well. That's not what this is about. That, that's part of it, yes, and of course we see that. But this is also showing us God's incredible faithfulness to his people. So God had given this instruction to Moses. But that's because way back further than that, back when we get to Genesis 12, God had, had brought Abraham to a place called Shechem. Shechem is a town that sits in between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. 
And there in Genesis 12, verse 7, God had said, I will give you this land. Your descendants to your offspring, I will give this land. Flick that on for me, thanks, Tim. And so Abram, at that, at that occasion when God speaks to Abram in Genesis 12, Abram builds an altar there, worships the Lord. And now, almost 600 years or around 600 years later, God's people stand in this place and they build an altar and they worship as they take possession of the land that God had promised 600 years ago. And so this is much more than details in a text. When we stand back and see the beauty and the unity of God's woven word, Don't we see that his unbreakable promises then enable his people's unwavering obedience? And so the place is incredibly significant and what happens is incredibly significant. We'll not go into the details of the altars and the sacrifices, but we'll see it in in Deuteronomy 27. There's eight verses there. In fact, the whole chapter is about what is to happen when you get to Mount Ebal. And this is exactly what Joshua does to the letter. And so what's the purpose? The purpose of all of this is not to sound really clever. Right? I, 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 don't, I don't in any way intend to think, oh, look at this. Drew's had a week to study this and he's discovered all this. No, this is God's good word to us. And it shows us when we stand back from it, when we, t- I was going to say when we stand back and dive in, that doesn't make sense. But you know what I mean? When, when, we, when we see the big picture of God's word, when we take the time to study into it, passages that, that some of us may struggle to engage with when we look through this Old Testament narrative, but it's there to show us God's unbreakable promises to his people. And then we also see the evidence of his people's actions acting in unwavering obedience, and we see God's blessing being poured out on his people. That's what we see in chapter 8 of Joshua. It's what we've seen in the whole book. It's what we will continue to see. Unfortunately, in chapter 9, There's failure again. But at the minute, God is working in and through his people. And because of his unbreakable promises, they are acting in unwavering obedience. And so time and time again, even when the people falter and stumble, God responds with holy patience. He graciously reminds his people, he is in charge. He is sovereign. He cannot and should not be taken lightly. His ways are right and true, so listen and obey. And I realize that sounds like, there's the potential to sound like we're repeating ourselves as we work our way through Joshua. But doesn't, isn't it good to be reminded of that? The people needed to be reminded of that as they've rooted out the sin of chapter 7, as they're on their way now to then try to work their way through more of the land, they needed a reminder that God is faithful. Regardless of their unfaithfulness, God is faithful all the time. And it's a message, of course, that that those of us who who seek to follow Jesus today, we we need to hear this too. God's promises are unbreakable. His holiness is powerful. His grace is sufficient. His love is unquenchable. His grace is lavish, as we read in Ephesians. And so the reason we need to continually hear these remarkable, rock-solid promises of God is that they enable our obedience to him. When we see his promise, we can then trust him to follow through and live in the light of them. But the reality is we don't don't live in this obedient... um, 
We don't live this obedient lifestyle out of some kind of cold, dutiful religion. We do so out of a warm and loving relationship that this holy God invites us into. See, following Jesus is about knowing him. It's about loving him. It's about allowing his work for us and in us to dictate how we live. He is our savior and our Lord. And so as we know him and love him and grow in our understanding and knowledge of him, our life reflects the beauty of his words. And how do we know him? How do we grow in him? How do we hear his teaching? How do we understand his promises? We find them in his word. It's the primary place where he's given them. Isn't that why the law plays such a a central part as the people gather on Mount Ebal? When Joshua reads all of the law to the whole community, his word continues to be the place where he makes himself known to his people. And the same is true for us. If we want to grow in our love for Jesus, we need to grow in our knowledge of him. We spend time with him. We enjoy time with him. And didn't Jesus say things just like this? When we read Jesus speaking to his followers in John 14, Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See the link? If you love me, you will obey. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Again in chapter 15, said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. See, God's commands are a way for us to remain in his love. They're not restrictive. In fact, as we go on to say, as Jesus goes on to say, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So God's commands on us are not restrictive. They are joyful. It's where we know his love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He finishes John 15, 12. Love Jesus, obey his commands, know his joy, love each other. This is what the people are called to here at the end of Joshua 8. They renew their commitment, their covenant with their God. And they, they, they trust even more and once more in the unbreakable promises of him. And they demonstrate that by their unwavering obedience. And as I said, we'll see in chapter 9 that they wane. That obedience does waver. But the point is that obedience is enabled in the first place and sustained by the unbreakable promises of God. He is the solid side of this covenant, if you like. His words will never fail. And because his words never fail, we as his covenant people can trustfully in him. We can hear his teaching. We can obey his commands because there we find love. There we know joy. And so may the same be said of God's people today, that we know his unbreakable promises and that enables our unwavering obedience to him. For our joy, yes, so that we know love, yes, but ultimately that he is glorified in our midst and through our lives. Let's pray as we finish our time in God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder again from your word today that you are our holy God. You are our faithful God. You are our truthful God.
You are loving, you are merciful, you are righteous, you are just. And Lord, thank you that, that, that we know that and we are welcomed into knowing you through relationship. We, we don't know those things about you because we've heard them from some, somewhere else or because we've read them in a book. We know those things to be true of you because you have revealed them to us in your book. And so we thank you, Father, that because of who you are, you welcome us into relationship. And you do so because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That you so loved the world that you sent your son so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for the life that you've called us into as your people. And we recognize again, like we did last week, Father, we stumble, we fall, we trip up, we are tempted. Yeah, God, thank you that you are stronger than that temptation, that you have given us the path to life and fullness and joy and love unending. And so would you help us, Father? Help us to come humbly before you. Help us to know the wonderful truth of your word so that our lives can demonstrate and and be fueled by the unbreakable promises that you make, that we are in you and under Christ, we are forgiven, we are free, we have a secure home awaiting us in eternity with you. And therefore, Father, the, the commands that you lovingly lay upon us, may we live them, Father, may we obey. We know, Lord, that we can only do this because of the strength of your Holy Spirit within us. And we pray that we would know more of his help in our lives. And therefore, Father, you would receive the glory that's due your name. And it is in that wonderful, victorious name that we pray. Amen.